You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. You know, if you haven't checked out the Producers Perspective Pro, now is a great time to do it. Lots of things on there to help you. The ProducersPerspectivePro.com just revamped. Check it out. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective Podcast. I am Ken Davenport. I'm super excited to chat with today's guest, Tony Award-winning producer and a winner of the 2016 Robert Whitehead Award for Excellence in Commercial Producing, Stacey Mindich. Welcome, Stacey. Thank you. Great to be here. Stacey has been producing on Broadway for about eight years now, but has amassed a terrific bunch of credits in that time, from the Jason Robert Brown Musical 13, where I met her in 2008, to the Bridges of Madison County, which I was on as well just a season or so ago. And tons of stuff in between, from Blackbird to The Crucible, Lucky Guy Annie, and most importantly, this season's breakout hit, Dear Evan Hansen. In addition, she's been a fantastic supporter of new writers with her own commission program, one of the few commission programs actually in existence by a commercial producer, as well as her support of nonprofits in the city, including Fund for New Musicals at the National Alliance for Musical Theater. She's a co-chair of the board at the New York City Center, and prior to her getting on the Broadway board, she started out as a reporter for the New York Times and was the senior editor at Town & Country, Stacey. So you obviously love musicals. What is it about them that you love so much? I wish life were musical. I, you know, I, I love the way that, um, well, in the old days, it was how it was sort of a fantasy that somebody would just break out into a song. Now, today, with the more realistic, authentic musicals, it's it's almost as if it gives um, voice to to your your deepest feelings that are very relevant today. On, on Dear Evan Hansen, we've been getting so many emails and tweets and one of the ones that I repeat constantly was a teenager who tweeted, Dear Evan Hansen is the soundtrack to my life. It's a blanket on my heart. And so I think that musicals and the music brings emotion to the script like nothing else. So you are relatively new to the Broadway producing game in about eight it's years. actually been a decade. It's been a decade now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you had this incredibly successful career in another industry. What made you say, okay, now I've been a success in this industry, I'm going to run over to this? I really, I really fell into it. And it, I blame it all on Bill Finn because I was actually just an audience member, a very devoted theater nerd, well into my 40s. I was trying to get tickets to Make Me a Song, a little review he had put together and it was going to be at the Zipper Theater, and I tried to call, and they weren't answering, and it was around the time that the Zipper was closing, 
And also I found out through friends that the um, show wasn't going to go on. The director had cancer. The producers couldn't finish raising the money for this teeny little off-Broadway show. And I, I just loved Bill Finn's music. I didn't know him. I just was very moved by it. And I obsessed about it enough that I finally found the producers, called them and, and asked, you know, why is the show not happening? I just wanted to see it. They are very smart people, Randy Adams and Sue Frost, Junkyard Dog Productions. And they said, well, for just this little bit of an investment, the show could go on. And it was really my first investment in Broadway. It was not even Broadway. But I, I, I really thought I was just going to get fabulous seats to the little tiny opening night where it wound up being at New World Stages. Sue and Randy were very smart. They saw something in me that, you know, perhaps they saw in themselves and that I see they've seen in lots of other people since then. And they said, no, no, you should be an associate producer. You should. And they made an exception for me. And they invited me to, you know, casting and rehearsals and, and brought me in in a way that an associate producer on a show normally isn't. And by the end of the experience, I was riveted and I felt that I needed to immediately change my life and be a part of this world. I didn't know how I fit in and I started just having breakfast, lunch, dinner and coffees in between with anybody I could. One person would say, well, you should talk to the next person until I realized that there isn't a way to educate yourself to be a commercial producer. You could take the CTI course, which I did. you should have started out in college taking theater management courses, but I missed that boat. And I was just too old to make coffee, be an intern, although I, I flirted with that idea. And so it was really just about trying to break into co-producing. But again, it was all Bill Finn's fault. And the joy of my life now is that I count him as a friend and hope to work with him again and again. So I'm a big believer that Broadway needs to look at other industries to learn from. So coming from another industry and in a very high position in that industry, what was your first reaction when you sat in on a Broadway ad meeting, business meeting? What did the industry look like to you coming from another another industry? Um, well, I actually talk about this all the time because I cannot believe how similar magazine editing or you know being part of a magazine editorial staff and being a commercial producer actually is. My job as the senior editor at Town & Country, which was the last job I had in journalism, was very much about being the sort of leader of a team um, on Dear Evan Hansen. It's about finding an idea. In magazines, you have many ideas because you need many, many ideas to make the magazine flourish. But it's about taking that one idea, which is a story, and we're all interested in storytelling and stories and what makes a good story, and finding the writer who has the chemistry with that story to write it, and then pairing that writer with an author, with an illustrator or a photographer to to make that story come alive on the pages, and then going so far as to you know have the graphic designer create that look on the pages of the magazine, and then you know in the general sense, an editor at a magazine has to keep that magazine alive, whether it's the sort of old Helen Gurley Brown concept of you know ten ways to be sexy now or just coming up with things that make the readers want to buy the magazine again and again and resubscribe, it's exactly like what we talk about when it's audience development. So it took me a while to get the lay of the land on Broadway, and certainly there are many, many differences. 
but I find that I'm I got home more quickly here when I realized that my skill set was actually the same. Anything from the magazine industry that we weren't doing that you instituted or a philosophy or advice? I I I don't have advice, but I, I do think that the magazine industry has always had to change with the nature of, you know, the way newspapers are printed and magazines are printed and the, the way that magazines have gone digital because the world required them to, because people read things on their tablets now. They don't always go to a newsstand. And I found in my years, and it wasn't just town and country, but I was at a variety of magazines and newspapers, that it may have been an industry that may be an industry that is more open to change and more open to new ideas. And I remember on one of the first few shows I was involved with in this industry that there wasn't a website and that the producer at the time didn't think there needed to be a website. And I think it's, I think we're a little slower to change on Broadway. So you co-produced a bunch of shows. You joined some teams on some other shows. What was your first big show that you felt was all your own? Well, I was very lucky to partner with Jeffrey Richards on the bridges of Madison County. You know, he had been a very prolific producer, a veteran of our industry, and teaming with him was the perfect situation for me in that I could, you know, learn from him while also being the sort of female on that team who could relate to the show in a way that he couldn't. And and so it really was, it was the show I really cut my teeth on. And in that step up from co-producing to lead producing, what made you feel like, okay, I'm ready for this now. This is a big, it's a big jump from being one of, one of a board member, as I like to call it, to, to the lead producer. Blind faith, a fearlessness, and a complete and utter passion when somebody says to you, um, here's an opportunity to lead produce a show in which Bart Share is directing, Marcia Norman is writing the book, Jason Robert Brown is doing the score, and Kelly O'Hara is going to sing the female lead role. They could have done The Exorcist Part 17, and I would have found a way to raise the money and be part of that show. Now, that show obviously didn't have the long run that we would all have hoped for. And in this business, they all can't be hits. How do you deal with a show that doesn't quite live up to your commercial expectations like that one? You sob, and I'm not embarrassed to say it because this is a business, but it is also art and it's a passion. And there are people who poured their lives and their talents into the show. And so it's it's a very painful thing when a show fails. But I think, and, and this is not, this is advice that a lot of people gave to me at the time. I think the way that you fail is very important. And I didn't want that show to close prematurely. And I think you just find ways to do everything you can to extend it so that it has the opportunity to reach certain milestones so that the Tony voters can get in, so that the CD can get made. And it was very important to me for that show to have those milestones, for that show to have that tour that it had, and for that CD to be um, released and for Jason Robert Brown to win that Tony for those two Tonys for orchestrations and for best score and to to let the fans of it because there were plenty 
come again and and have their their moment with it too. Once you have a show out there, it's not yours; it's everyone's. Along your journey, did you find it challenging to enter the industry as a woman? Like, did you feel any difference in this old boys' club of a business? I get asked this a, a lot, and I always want to have the sort of salty answer that people are craving, but I feel very fortunate in that I have not felt at a disadvantage for being a woman. I have felt welcomed by both male producers and female producers, and I feel I have had some wonderful mentors, both female, male, young and old, and and I don't feel that. I, I see it in other parts of the industry. And I'm very, very proud to have been one of the first board members of the Lilly Awards, which recognizes female achievement in this industry and comes up with very innovative programs for women artists. But I personally have not felt that. Anything we can do to encourage more women to get involved in the theater as an artist or as a producer yourself? I think it's not just women. I think it's women and men. I think it's mentoring. I think that we have um, a duty to teach the people coming into this industry how to do it. And that was something that I remember very, very well looking for when I came in. It was, it was my second career. I was 40 years old when I started producing. And I was looking for people to bring me inside and show me how it really works. And that is actually quite hard to find. And and I think that, you know, I have interns in this office that they're young, they're not ready to produce, but they're ready to learn the ropes. But a lot of our most successful producers in this industry have come from second careers. And so they're not um, 21-year-olds who can give out opening night gifts and do all those, those young intern kind of tasks. And so I, I do think that mentoring is something we really need to think about in this industry. Let's talk about Jeremy Hansen because it's such an example of incredible creative producing from my perspective. Because you look at it on paper and you say, and I did actually when you talked to me about the show years ago, oh, it's a small show, it's not a spectacle, it's a totally original idea, which my blog has tons of stats on how that's the riskiest thing to ever do in the theater. Oh, it's about a family coping with some very difficult challenges and issues. There's a tragedy. There's all sorts of things that say, eh, this isn't going to be a commercial success. What about it made you say, I, I, I want to do this show and I want to support, support these writers who've come up with this idea? Well, I think it is for me always about the, the writers and the artists, really, all of them. And I was in this unusual situation in that I commissioned this show. And I did that because I met Benj Pasek and Justin Paul through a variety of circumstances. And it's all, you know, there are some very funny stories about how we all came together several different times. But it ended up at a lunch at Josie's on the West Side, which doesn't exist anymore, because I, I believed in them. And I was unbelievably excited to have lunch with these, this pair of 24-year-olds at the time. This was eight years ago. And I I had actually commissioned a show of theirs for Lincoln Center Theater, a show called Dogfight, which went on to have a lovely not-for-profit life. And it's been, you know, on the road and it's been in a lot of other places. It's a brilliant show, but for a variety of reasons, I couldn't work on it commercially. And it, I, I'm not sure it, it was that kind of show, but I I just wanted to get to know them better 
and, and frankly, I just wanted to listen to more of their scores. So we had lunch and I had a list of ideas at the time that I thought could be musicals. And the more I sat and listened to them speak and anybody who knows them well knows that they're excited and they're excitable and they're, uh, they bounce off the walls with their energy and they're very, very charming. And the more I spoke to them and the longer our lunch went on and it was a long, long lunch, the more I realized that I couldn't ask them to do any of the musicals that were my passion. They might have done them and they might have done them beautifully. I bet they would have, but it wouldn't have been their passion. And so I asked them what they really wanted to write because at that moment they were doing James and the Giant Peach for a not-for-profit, a Christmas story, which was, you know, I loved the way it turned out. I, I love to listen to that overture all the time because I think it's just genius. But it wasn't who they were. And they told me the story that is not what Dear Evan Hansen is now, but there is a germ of what Dear Evan Hansen is that was in that story. And it was a real life experience that Benj had had in high school. And beyond the experience, it was the feeling he was left with about his generation. And they said that's what they wanted to be their next musical or a musical that they would absolutely love to write. Them saying the words that this is what they really wanted to do made me want to do it no matter what. It didn't matter that it was had a dark turn. It didn't matter that they were 24. And it didn't matter that I didn't know exactly how it was all going to happen. I knew that I was just going to dedicate myself to it. And even though it took eight years and I have produced a variety of other shows during these years, some that have been successful and some that haven't, this has always been the one that I have pushed and I have loved because it was their passion. And funny enough, over the years, it has unbelievably begun to speak to me and my life, even though I never thought that it would. You know, I think, you know, if you know about the show, it has a backdrop of social media. Social media is almost like the ninth character in the show. And at the time, I was, you know, very proud to say things like, yeah, I'll probably die before I ever go on Facebook, just because it felt too large to me. It just I just wasn't, I didn't grow up with Facebook. And then about three years ago, when we were in the heart of the show, show's development and about to, you know, take some major new steps with it, I looked around me in the room and I was surrounded by millennials. I have, you know, young people working in my office and I have three teenage boys. And I realized that if I didn't get involved in social media, I was going to be missing out on what these people are thinking and feeling and what the world was really like today. And it really changed my life. I mean, I don't tweet or post anything other than what we retweet here at SMP. But I have definitely spent evenings going down the rabbit hole of Instagram. I definitely read fewer books. But I'm definitely more in tune with what my teenagers think and see and do and how they communicate. And I hope that I am also more in tune with audiences and the younger artists that I care so much about. So I think that was a very long-winded answer, but for me, Dear Evan Hansen started with Ben Passick and Justin Paul. It very quickly became about Stephen Levinson, who swooped in and created this foundation where there was none for this story. I mean, he literally created our underlying rights. And then it became about Michael Greif and how he came in with his emotional wheelhouse and shaped the story into something that we all could relate to and just love. So you had to 
eight years from that lunch, I guess, but in a few years of development along the way, you went to Arena, you came to Second Stage, and then eventually to Broadway. What's the role of the creative producer yourself in that process along the way, besides just raising the money? Oh, for a long time, it was never about raising the money. It was really about organizing. It was about being the one person who hears it all the time, talks to the artists all the time, and makes the decisions about when it's ready to move to the next step. You know, a lot of times, I think people ask all producers, what do you really do? And it, there's never one right answer, because I think the answer is that producers just do everything. You're involved in, you know, just every single little nitty gritty thing. For us in the in the early years, it was really about just getting everybody in the same room, because Benj and Justin were on the rise. Stephen Levinson was a Brooklyn playwright when I hired him, and about three weeks later, he became a Hollywood TV writer. And you know, Michael has you know since directed you know If Then and several other things that you know prevented everybody from working together in a cohesive, organized fashion. And so it was really up to me to gather everyone. So you gather everyone in the room. You make it all the way here to Broadway. You're doing fairly well, over a million dollars last week in the grosses. So. It doesn't stop for Broadway producers, right? It's not like you can sit back and be like, oh, look at that, we're grossing a million dollars. What's the work that you have to do now? You've got great notices, you're doing very well, but tell us a little bit about what's what's next. Well, I think everybody thinks that it's all done after opening night, you know, and, and certainly the greatest challenge really is mounting a show, whether it takes eight years or eight months, it's, you know, it's it's a great challenge to make it all happen and get it on Broadway. Then you need to keep it on Broadway. And I have never been the kind of person that would feel comfortable walking away or working on the next show right away because this show, you know, is speaking to, I say this a lot and people look at me like I'm crazy, but this show is speaking to me. I feel a dialogue with it. I heard it at Arena Stage. And it said to me, as well as my writer said to me, it's not time to go to Broadway. We have more work to do. And now I feel like it's saying, don't listen to the numbers. That's wonderful. And I'm grateful. And I, I love every audience member. I smile at them every night when they walk in the theater. They, they don't know who I am, but I hope they feel some warmth coming from me to them. But I want this show to stay on Broadway for a really long time not just because I want this show to stay on Broadway for a really long time, but because I think that Evan Hansen has something to teach people. And I think that people feel in this day and age like they are Evan Hansen, their son or their daughter or their niece or their next door neighbor or their brother-in-law is Evan Hansen. We all have some of the issues that he faces or we are their mother, or we are their friend or neighbor. And it's a very relatable show. And so I really, I'm hoping that now that we've gotten the show open, that the show might do some good. So you have one of the few, if not, I think you may be the only, or certainly one of the few commercial producers that has a commission program. It's something that nonprofits usually do. Is this something you think all commercial theater producers should do? I think that it, Saying I have a commissioning program is probably more formal than it really is. I have an open mind to falling in love with a young artist and his or her work 
and a no fear policy about taking it an extra step to see if it's something that I could actually work with. Way more than I have commissioned pieces, I have given an artist, whether it's a director or a, you know, a composer or a, a playwright, a reading and a chance to work for a few days under my guidance and with my support and my office's support to see what they have. And that's partially for me to see whether it's something I want to engage in, but it's also for them to just further it along a little bit. So even if I say, no, I'm so sorry, I can't commission this piece, they have gotten something from the experience with me. But I don't have an application process and I don't have, you know, anything that is very formal about this. And I am very, very selective only because I'm one one person and I've learned, you know, the hard way that when you commit to something, you have to see it through. And also, you know, that things take a very, very long time and you must, you must keep your interest. So it's really more about being willing and open to finding the art that you would work on in unexpected ways, as opposed to going to London to bring a show over here. Um, that's not something I could ever do because I have three kids at home. So I really try to limit my travel to something that is directly related to a show I'm working on or doing a revival, which I would love to do and I have done and I'd like to do more of, but it's a, just, just a different part of your brain. So how do you find these new writers, or, or should I rephrase this because I can practically hear all the writers listening to this podcast chomping at the bit. How do you discover these new voices? One of the ways I used to and, and is by going to Colony Records, you know, which is no longer here. And I used to talk to the guys behind the counter and just hear who is new and listen to things. Now you can do that on YouTube and all of that. And I, I do spend a lot of time, and it's really a passion and a pastime rather than a, a, a work-related thing, just listening to songs. I used to be very involved at NAMT, which was a thrill. I remember the first time I ever went to a NAMT conference, I looked around the room and I thought, I have found my people. You know, here are all the theater nerds, and they're not even New Yorkers. These people, you know, belong to NAMT from all over the country. And we, we launched, when I was there, this Fund for New Musicals. And I, I got to sit on the panel that chose some of the people who were awarded these funds. And it really give you, gives you a bird's eye view of what people are thinking out there, what they're writing about, what they're inspired by. So I'm still sort of plenty of things to examine from those years of being involved in NAMT. Now people find me, and that's that's actually very complex and challenging because I don't have a lot of time anymore. We used to have artists come in every Friday. And we'd have cookies and coffee and a, I have a piano and they'd play a song or two and I wouldn't promise anything, but I would bank it, bank the information, even if it was just that I followed them and they would let me know when they had a show out of town or the song they played me became part of that show. And I would say, that's great. Keep me, keep me in the loop. And it's great to have young people work for you because I can't go out at night all the time, but I can send young people to their shows and their concerts and I like being in the loop and and hearing these things and you know it rarely results in an official commission but it often results in a friendship and a camaraderie and perhaps maybe I'm a guidance counselor for this industry I don't know what's next after Dear Evan Hansen something else cooking 
Dear Evan Hansen is next after Dear Evan Hansen. I, I, I'm, I'm a one-show kind of woman, and I feel very tied to this cast and this creative team, and I'm here for it. I'm right across the street, and I love to pop in and watch the audience come in, or I love to go right before the half hour and see them all dance and make sure they're all feeling well. And so right now, I really want to keep my focus on that show. Okay, my last question, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to your office doing a sorry. But building. now isn't he Thomas Jefferson? That's right. That's right. The genie. <laughs> the, now the Thomas Jefferson question. I will not rap when I ask this question, but let's imagine Thomas Jefferson had magical powers and the ability to grant a wish. And he comes here and knocks on your door and says, Stacey, your commitment to new writers in this industry is un." Paralleled, and I personally can Davenport mean that. In eight years, I have never seen anyone, or ten years now, I've never seen anyone so committed to new writing. Bringing them into your office and giving them cookies, <laughs> fantastic. But your support has been incredible, and both I and the entire industry and this genie slash Thomas Jefferson want to thank you by granting you one wish. What's the one thing that makes you so mad about working in this business? Makes you so angry, could have you throwing this beautiful glass apple that I'm seeing here across the wall that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant. The one thing about Broadway that really peeved you off. Well, you know me well, and you know it takes a lot for me to get peeved. So I'm not sure that I can give you the anger and passion you're looking for in this answer, but I wish there were more of a way for Broadway to be for everyone. You know, we all long for teenagers to come to our show. I mean, if we have the appropriate kind of show. So, you know, I, I wish there were something we could do as an industry to get more kids and families into experience um, live theater and what it means. Well, having just passed a group of teenagers walking down 8th Avenue with your Evan Hansen hats, I think producing content for them is, uh, is a great start to that. So thank you for uh, producing your Evan Hansen. It's, uh, again, an incredible example of producing. And thank you to all of you for listening, and we will see you next time. Don't forget, great time to check out the theproducersperspectivepro.com. We've got a whole bunch of new stuff for new members. Go check it out, theproducersperspectivepro.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.